the pace of change today is almost hard to keep track of, but that's what we're going to keep uh, trying to keep doing. Um, and we're you happy need to re-record to... that, Alex. The pace of change today is almost impossible to keep track of. What the fuck is that? The opening to a Thomas uh, Friedman column? Come on. Okay, okay, fine. Hello, dear patrons. Welcome back to BungaCast. It's the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. I'm Alex Hochuli, and I'm here with Phil Cunliffe and George Horror. Hello, boys. Hello, Bunga hey, boys, fellow Bunga boys. Hey. Uh, it's Friday, the 14th of October, and we're here to talk about the scintillating subject of trussonomics. In fact, uh, we're sitting down to record this kind of midway through the day, and um, we've all been checking Twitter to see the latest. And uh, the latest is it that... It looks like Trustonomics is over. Trustonomics. So <laughs> we need a new topic. Timely, as always. No, the the, the, the truth of the matter is that uh, Tr- Liz Truss, who is possibly the most hilarious prime minister Britain has had, <laughs> um, has... Uh, her chancellor, Quasi Quarteng, has now been sacked for um, the budget that he did. And we're going to talk about this in a little bit more detail in a second. Uh, he's been sacked and uh, the former health secretary, Jeremy Hunt, uh, has been brought in. Um, and he's been brought in because the markets have reacted extremely negatively to a mini budget that was released a couple of days ago. So um, anyway, we're going to talk about this. And the reason for it is that in the midst of neoliberalism's slow collapse that we've been talking about for five years on this podcast, this, and specifically Liz Trust's premiership, has been a pretty blatant attempt to revive it, to kind of play the old hits back once again, as if it's 1993. Um, And there has been a negative market reaction to that. So I think that demands a lot of explanation. Why have the markets disliked what would be seen as fairly typical neoliberal recipes? Anyway, so um, to get this started, uh, Phil, why don't you talk us through kind of what's exactly happened for those who haven't followed um, what the ongoings of a, of a small, dreary, rainy island in the North Atlantic, about which we know little. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Thank you, Alex, for your uh, typically self-deprecating English introduction to, to, uh, to British politics. It's always appreciated. Our listeners appreciate it, and I appreciate it, too. So the latest is, so Truss has announced not only, I mean, as um, the Chancellor Quarting resigned and was humiliatingly called back from meetings with the uh, top financiers in Washington, I think uh, meetings with the IMF, in fact, um, humiliating enough that Britain was effectively being taken to D.C. You know, the Chancellor of the Exchequer was sent to D.C. in order to be kind of given a talking to by the IMF, humiliating enough, and then cut short the discussions with the IMF to be sent back to Britain in order to be fired by a long-standing kind of apparently personal friend and political ally, Liz Truss, the Prime Minister. In addition to that, she's given a short, the latest news is, um, which is around uh, three o'clock in the afternoon here in the UK, she's given a very short uh, press conference where she's announced that the... um, tax cuts, the corporation tax cuts that were planned to come in and that were one of the centerpiece of this so-called mini-budget they introduced um, shortly. When was it? The mini-budget was like, what, like not even two weeks ago? 23rd of September. So three weeks, all right? So just over, just, uh, you know, not even a month. Um, And as part of, so anyway, she's reversed the tax cuts. So the tax cuts, it was, um, they were meant to, uh, the tax cuts for corporations was meant to drop to 19% from 25%. And now they're going to go back up to 25%. So um, it seems like, you know, and the map, the pound apparently is rising and the market is breathing a sigh of relief at the prospect of um, higher taxes on corporations um, to boot, not to put too fine a point on it. So it's a kind of, I mean, in addition to um, the kind of the gyrations in UK policy, um, the apparent weakness of the prime minister, and all of this is kind of with rumours flying that she's going to be ousted in a palace coup um, by Christmas. And, you know, this is only after they just got rid of Boris Johnson earlier this year. So, I mean, you know, this is kind of Latin American, maybe even Brazilian levels of yeah. political instability now mm. in our, um, in otherwise, you know, what is the among in the mother of all parliaments 
and a centerpiece of political stability in the world. Um, in addition to all of that, there's the bigger kind of thematic question, which is of interest to us, which is how far, you know, what the attempt, as Alex suggested, what the attempt, the failed attempt to bring back neoliberalism, what that tells us about neoliberalism in global politics. And so it's worth, I guess, having a bit of just a bit of kind of background to um, to the um, to the trust trustonomics project. So, yeah. I mean, apart from it's you know it's essentially tax cutting was the mini budget was tax cutting, reducing taxes on corporations, reducing taxes on the wealthy, reducing less and reducing taxes at the bottom end, not as much as they reduce taxes at the top end. And then they also promised so called you know they were talking about um, new kind of so-called supply side measures to stimulate growth. All of this was packaged as um, indicating the need for boosting British productivity and boosting economic growth. And so, as Adam Tews pointed out elsewhere, um, you know, in one of the writings that you can see on the um, on the show notes, you know, there is kind of an indication has imprinted itself now in Britain's political class. There is an acknowledgement that the central question for British political economy is restoring economic growth and productivity. Um, but all of this, you know, there was never there was never any kind of beyond tax cuts. There was never really anything concrete offered up as to what those other um, stimulants to growth would be. So. It was very much kind of presented as um, the as essentially tax cuts, but also the background to Truss and to Quartenk, her chancellor that she's just fired, is that they both kind of um, are very much from the neoliberal think tank world. I mean, that's the kind of place that they were politically incubated, and they were both yeah. co-authors of a pamphlet called Britannia Unchained some years back. Um, while they were while they were um, still both on the back benches and when they were far away from power. And this was a classic kind of neoliberal think tank pamphlet where the whole idea was, you know, if you kind of um, cut away the red tape and if you try and emulate places like Singapore, um, the market will kind of spontaneously assert itself and drive a new era of British prosperity and growth. So, yeah, this is this Singapore on Thames idea right that they were trying to push as one vision of a post-brexit britain uh yeah but george i think before we go forward maybe it's worth going back a little bit and just setting up the context of austerity britain which preceded it from you know over the past decade effectively yeah so just to to take first things first so singapore and thames Thames, the thames is a um father thames is is a river that runs through london and parts of the south of uh britain including reading and caversham Let, less geography more listeners. political economy and move but it's uh and singapore oh, okay we don't need to talk about singapore but the um <clears throat> yeah so i guess it might or might not be useful to just give a bit bit of a brief history of the last sort of 10 years of or 15 years of um of conservatism in britain because i think one thing which trusses it was only two weeks into being prime minister that she made this mini budget announcement and basically seems now to have sunk her her, her premiership if not her party um so it's really quickly after the departure of johnson that the the contradictions in the or the limitations of contemporary conservatism in britain were, were revealed but yeah as you said alex what's the the kind of the the, the mid-range history so yeah t- 2010 we had a coalition government um david cameron uh, as Prime Minister and George Osborne as Chancellor, were particularly keen after, in the aftermath of the global financial crisis to impose austerity, which um, basically meant cutting state spending and, um, if not handouts, to political allies and contractors of uh, associated with the Conservative Party. I think those maintained strong levels um, throughout the last 15 years. Um, and this kind of... Um, ideological more than anything else um commitment to low state spending um dominated british conservatism in over the course of the the 2010s until of course the brexit referendum in 2016 um and then i guess you know to cut a very long story and one that we've talked about quite a lot in this podcast before short um this was essentially resolved in 2019 by boris johnson um attempt successful attempt to make to create a coalition of traditional Tories with working class Northern Brexit supporters. And this was the kind of, you know, there was some one nation conservatism packaging at some point, but that was the, basically the, the class um, 
basis of the the um, coalition. And you could say that this, you know, it was tested during COVID and that was what eventually led to Johnson's um, breakdown and or, or uh, destruction by the party. And so you had trust coming in, basically thinking, OK, we don't need we don't want this this coalition anymore. We don't want this. Um, we want to appeal to our kind of older base of um, people who don't want to pay the top band of tax, people who want to pay or want to make more money by corporations paying less tax. Let's say what we can do here. And this um, very quickly ran into uh, some of the problems that I think we're going to be discussing over the course of this, the rest of this episode. Yeah, I mean, what's amazing about this episode, I, I thought looking at it in kind of global comparison is that there's been several instances in various countries of parties trying to um, apply a you know old school neoliberal recipe um, when it seems that the winds are blowing in a different direction. But what's kind of unique about the British case is that the ruling party stumbled on a recipe for some post-neoliberal management of the economy with a greater role for state spending and then deliberately self-sabotage. Um, seemingly, I mean, from the outside, for no reason whatsoever, having, having basically... Ha- been given this recipe on a plate or stumbled upon it, um, only to then reverse it to obviously disastrous consequences. We'll come on to the political uh, consequences a little bit more explicitly in a bit. But I mean, just to foreshadow that, you know, the the Labour Party is set for, you know, according to uh, recent polls for, you know, an absolutely thumping majority to the extent that the Tories might not even be the second largest party in in, in Parliament. Um, I, think, to, to, to yeah, return- I, th- I think this worth, no, I think it's worth just reflecting on this, like the um, in 1997, there was a, a, a the New Labour landslide victory, and political scientists said that this was of the same scale as an asteroid hitting the Earth and wiping out all all life. And this is, you know, the Tory Party. If the numbers which Trust is currently polling at were to um, to hold in the next general election, would be just completely completely de- well worse than decimated. I mean, if you know what decimation is, it's pretty it's pretty strong stuff that the Romans used to do. Um, but this would be, you know, this would be not good for the for the Tories and yeah as you said Alex they they stumbled onto this um new conservative electorate um more through luck than judgment or through some kind of through a dark dark a glass darkly kind of political intuition um and then they thought no I mean a, you know this this large uh, majority in parliament fuck it you know why bother um we've got some better ideas and it turns out that those ideas may be um we're not so popular with the yeah. electorate, but we haven't had a definitive chance to see this or not. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, all the polling the, could be wrong. That's the important point, right? So, I mean, um, the U-turn, the ditching of the chancellor, and the um, scrapping of the mini budget has been prompted by the markets, right? Not by um, testing the coalition at um, at the ballot box. So, very clearly, like a pivot away from. Uh, the promise of leveling up as it was that was the big selling point of the Johnson administration, which was to say investment, you know, promises of investment in the North and the Midlands, the Brexit supporting working class, old working class areas, old labor areas. Um, that was explicitly rejected by the Singapore on Thames um model. And I mean the, you know, that's the other point, I suppose. The Singapore on Thames model of Brexit never really had, um, you know, I mean, it never had significant support among the electorate. And so it was appropriate, I guess, that it's never really, it didn't come to power through an election and it's not really been tested at an election either. More kind of paradoxically or counterintuitively, it's been broken by the markets. And this is the question we raised at the beginning and it's the one kind of, we want to kind of um, put front and centre because it's the one that's most important to trying to understand what's happening with the disintegration of neoliberalism. Um, but beyond that, like uh, the, you know, the only other element to um, to add, I think, is the fact that this, um, you know, this model has also, I mean, I should say, you know, the difference, I suppose, with 1997 is that that I think you can kind of see as part of the oscillation of what was still at that time kind of a stable party system. Um, And you still had, I mean, Labour was still, you know, you still had kind of solid, um, in 1997, you still had solid party political identification and Labour had, new Labour had an alliance. They still had bases in the North and the Midlands 
which they could use as a base from which to kind of sally outwards and then to capture middle-class England in the southeast, which is how they built their majority. That Nobody has those solid bases anymore, um, either of the parties. So I think that the all polls... That is, all that was solid has melted into air, indeed. <clears throat> so if I think if, um, you know, if I don't think the polls would hold up in an election, so as dramatic as they look at the moment, I think once we were in an election, we would rapidly see Labour's um, polling lead shrink. But nonetheless, I mean, it's evidence of the deep unpopularity of the Tory party, um, the incompetence that, you know, Liz Truss is now associated with, and that the Tory party have definitively destroyed their reputation for being kind of stewards of Britain's economy which, I mean, it was never deserved. But um, if there was any case to be made for it, it was certainly lost a long time ago. And that's, you know, that is now um, without doubt in the electorate as well. Yeah, so I mean, it's worth saying exactly what that stewardship consisted of over the sort of Cameron Osborne period in power uh, from 2010, you know, for the for the better part of the, the past decade. And that was effectively not just um, fiscal austerity, which uh, George has already talked about, but cheap money. And that was the whole thing that kept the, the show going um, and retain markets credibility. Uh, you know, to a certain extent, the Tories used the euro crisis, in particular Greece, to say, hey, look, we have to cut our spending, um, you know, tighten our belts and so on. And that um, was probably bought by a, a significant enough section of the electorate um, as, you know, for them to be able to carry on with uh, with their austerity agenda, you know, effectively this the, the, the sort of austerity ideology, which to now to most of us, I think, seems completely, um, you know, completely preposterous. But the idea was basically that, oh, the state's budget are um, completely analogous to a household budget. And if you overspend, you know, you'll, you'll, pay for that in the end. So, you know, you have to tighten your budgets and uh, rein in spending. But the counterpart part to that was cheap money. But now what's going on is almost a reversal of that. You know, this is what trustonomics looks like. It is uh, effectively an attempt to raise interest rates. Of course, this is carried out by the formerly independent uh, central bank, the Bank of England. Um, but nevertheless, you know, you have, so now you have kind of tight money at the same time as you have um sort of an end to fiscal austerity, at least in terms of, you know, tax cuts. So that's not increased spending, but it's the state taking in less uh, less taxes. So, I mean, Phil, why have they done this? Because it seems, you know, it is a complete reversal of the model that was working before um, at a time when everyone is tightening um, on a monetary level and raising interest rates. Yeah, it's hard to read. I mean, in as much as, you know, I think it's easy also to kind of overstate um, stratagems or to infer kind of stratagems from um, policy, the way kind of these policies have been devised. But it seems like the, you know, part of the part of what they were trying to do with the mini budget was to force the Bank of England, the independent central bank, into raising interest rates because they see cheap money is i mean you know the uh it's not kind of an original point and i'm sure there's truth to it they see cheap money as part of the problem so by raising interest rates they would also kind of um restore instead of this kind of permissive environment which has allowed um low growth low productivity to flourish and has kept all these zombie companies going um a more normal rate of interest would kind of restore normal functioning in the economy. And so they were trying to force the Bank of England into raising interest rates, which they did, um, you know, and, but also then the mini budget also had the knock on effect of um, prompting a, um, a kind of a meltdown in the gilt market, uh, which isn't the market just before I'm going to do this to cut off any opportunity for George or Alex, not the market in Catholic indulgences, but the market for um, British government bonds. <laughs> we would never. So, no, of course. So, um, and without getting, I mean, without getting into the details, but basically there was like one of the so-called financial doom loops at work where the prompting, the the gov um, lack of faith in the budget prompted a sell-off of uh, gilts, which um, exposed British pension funds who are heavily invested in gilts. So they started selling gilts. And so this kind of began a process of um, a so-called doom loop of selling gilts, raising Britain's borrowing costs to the extreme, which necessitated the Bank of England coming back in. And instead of um, tightening the money supply, expanding the money supply again by um, buying, by buying uh, British government debt. 
So an extraordinarily messy situation. I guess the other element of this, and this is why like people were wondering whether the guilt kind of sell off and buyback by the Bank of England is indicative, you know, is kind of the um, the beginning of a wider financial collapse because it exposed fragility in the financial system at the global level that, um, you know, seems to be, um, yeah, I mean, I suppose tremendously delicate at the moment. And so there might be more, you know, there might be more to the story in due course. I mean, there's a there's kind of two possibilities which are sketched out in terms of why this has happened as well. I mean, this is in a in an Adam Two's piece in the Guardian, but he suggests two things. One is the the kind of moron premium that basically the markets think trust is an idiot, which she is, um, and as a consequence, react kind of negatively to her moves. But the other one is a much more deliberate one, and he suggests that it's something along the lines of what the U.S. Republicans have been doing for decades now, which is, uh, you know, summed up in the in the term starve the beast, which is basically you cut taxes. And as public revenues contract, it creates a further demand for cutting spending, right? So instead of cutting spending first, you um, cut taxes, which people like, because they have they can pay less taxes. Um, but then as the, the state budget becomes increasingly strangled, uh, you know, it creates this demand for cutting spending, and that that is, in fact, the uh, the kind of intention behind um, behind Truss's budget and would be in keeping with her kind of think tank background. Um, but of course, I think, and this is, this is, I guess, what's interesting about the think tank aspect is that um, as with a lot of people from that milieu, I mean, there's a, there's a, a lack of political sense. So there's might be an expertise and certain ability to plan certain at a kind of policy level, right. Of how to proceed in creating this policy, how to create the right feedback loops in purely in policy terms and what goes on in number 10 Downing Street in Parliament and, and other bodies, but a lack of complete lack of political sense of how this plays out in public. Um, and I think that's maybe what's what's on show here, because there is no appetite for cutting public spending uh, in Britain today, rather the opposite, um, which itself is a sort of a mark of, of how far we've come over the past decade or more, um, where previously some of those budget cuttings, I'm not saying it was kind of had mass popularity and there were people chanting on the streets to cut state budgets, but there was a certain, you know, as I said, certain acceptance of uh, a, a yeah. so-called objective need to, to cut. Yeah. People uh, bought, I mean, yeah. people certainly bought the household analogy um, as to kind of, we need to kind of, you know, stop spending so much on our credit card um, in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. That's uh, for certain. Um, and so it did have kind of a resigned acceptance, even if there wasn't widespread enthusiasm for it, um, among the voter base, and that seems to be entirely gone, and that in, that you know that is also an interesting aspect of it. The think tank thing I think is actually important because it's not you know it indicates a whole model of politics is breaking down. Um, so you whereas mean? you know, well you know like there was there's a particular infrastructure of politics in different periods, and the the infrastructure of politics in the era of kind of mass parties and mass organizations didn't rely on think tanks. It relied on kind of the way in which ideas were formulated, were formulated much more through um, negotiation with kind of, you know, influential constituents, with voters in, in within political parties themselves, not kind of contracted out to semi-independent or quasi-independent think tanks um, where ideas and policies are kind of, you know, spaffed, you know, kind of essentially spaffed out without being integrated or um, threaded through party membership structures this, instead you know you'd have yeah. a few kind of polls and a few focus groups shall we do this policy the think tank supports it you show it to the members they support it we do a focus group okay let's try it and that model of doing politics it's not you know it simply doesn't work in the contemporary context this was the more Pellerin society's approach though right i mean this is one kind of account of the rise of neoliberalism which is kind of you know spaff out the policies so that they're on hand for when we come into power and then we can use them I mean, this is a, um, you know, quite a widespread kind of interpretation of the rise of um, <clears throat> neoliberal policies and particularly in Thatcher and Reagan's cases, because all of those, um, yeah, and I guess they do presuppose a detachment from the electorate. They're kind of, you know, they're, they're not, um, it's not exactly producing uh, praxis out of a a theory out of um, a, a close association with praxis, but or anything like that. But you know, this is something which probably has been 
you know has been coming for a little while the the detachment of um politicians from the electorate is all the people to who they're accountable is very is very clear and so this leads to this um sort of way of, of developing policies but i guess one thing i did want to talk about a little bit was just how like this the, the situation in which this um like this mini budget or whatever it was or the, the introduction of trustonomics into a situation where there was not just this um as we've talked about this kind of public uh appetite for high state spending but there was also um a, you know you could say pretty objective need for there to be massive um expenditures to stabilize energy prices i mean the the very idea of having like winter blackout winter energy crises and like not enough not enough energy to heat and um and light people's houses this 150 billion pounds like this amount of money um announced and you know so on the one hand you have this 45 billion in tax cuts on the other hand 50, 150 billion quid to stabilize energy prices it's like this is a why why not why not wait until <laughs> the spring until the summer when people don't need to put the heating on and that's when you can announce your um your tax cuts it just seems like um an absolutely i don't know why 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 they would have chosen to done it to do it in this way at all hey i think uh, and it's it's an interesting question because there is kind of the i think i mean it's partly a response to it is an attempt to get out of the kind of post politics right so despite the kind of the technocratic origins of the britannia unchained vision despite the lack of kind of democratic mandate or even popular support for the Singapore and Thames, um, you know, in their minds, like um, if they're bold and they show that they believe in something and they're not just kind of focus group driven politicians, but they're willing to stick to their guns and they do these kinds of dramatic interventions, um, you know, I think in their heads, they genuinely thought that they were demonstrating kind of bold leadership um, and, Perhaps its unpopularity was even a, you know, kind of testimony to how visionary and um, strong they were, you know, willing to face down the opinion polls that initially suggested it was so unpopular. So I think in the, you know, probably, in, and you saw, you mean, you know, you saw some of this um, even in the Blair era um, or even in kind of with George Bush, right, in um, during the kind of the the low points of the Iraq war, at least low points in terms of polling figures for the Bush administration, where he cultivated himself as this image of the great decider, right? So I think it is, I think it's in keeping with that pattern. Is, isn't Thatcher leaders. the originator of that? I mean, isn't Thatcher really the one who comes in and does something which is deeply unpopular and rips up the post-war settlement against um, no, but she wins, opinion. but the point is she, she wins elections, yeah? Yeah. She wins elections and she no, also I... kind of very, you know, she was very, much, you know, she relied on important, powerful people in her cabinet with a powerful kind of, um, you know, a powerful electoral and wider support ba power base in wider society. Yeah. Not least kind of, you know, the... Um, uh, the city, the financiers, and Britain's, um, you know, uh, Britain's capitalists. So uh, that's what I, mean, I was. That that's what I was trying. That's what I was trying to draw yeah. at. Effectively, that I mean that she seems to originate the policy, and Liz Truss, of course, is tries to you know admire sure. and emulate Thatcher. But I think no, there, but there what is, you point at is precisely the differences. Yeah, but it's but so I mean it's not it's not just I mean it's taking unpopularity as a symptom of your you know how much of a visionary leader you are. Um, they genuinely thought that, you know, there are moments, obviously, kind of, you know, when unpopular politics is, um, you know, is kind of, um, you know, the correct path to pursue. And anyone, I'm sure anyone can think of 10 examples off the top of their head, right? But then to kind of flip that and to think that unpopular politics is the guarantee of your political vision <laughs> and how, um, yeah. you know, how bold and um, willing to break with the consensus you are, you know, I mean, that's debating, you know, that's kind of university debating level society. No, I just university I'm, debate I'm not sure I agree. Politics. I'm not sure I agree. I mean, sometimes when you do a, a tweet and it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't do very good numbers, it doesn't get retweeted or liked, you're like, well, that was because it was too visionary. It was too good. So people just had to turn away from it because of its kind of extraordinary um brilliant yeah, i mean that's I what people are saying there are do, you know there I, do, are liberal I do kind of see trustonomics that, that are saying that there is a yeah i mean there is a kind of like okay so johnson had this um 
didn't really have necessarily a kind of de definitive, um, but at least a provisional um, post-Brexit settlement in the way that, um, so the way that Thatcher came along to tear up the, the post-war settlement, Trust coming along, tear up the post-Brexit settlement. It's like um, in the first episode of 30 Rock TV show, where Jack Donaghy comes in and he's the new he's the new um, the new boss and so he's like okay you have to change things it doesn't matter if they worked perfectly fine before you've got to change them um, but no I think there there is a serious point here which is that some of the response to um, the you know to trustonomics I mean I mentioned it before that um, FT article that where political scientists in Britain judged the Tories as nine point four out of ten in a left right scale I mean that's that's that Alex I know you you have some you have some um explanation for this but i don't think there is really a very good one i think this is just shows that there you know there was an extent to which if you want to defend trustonomics on any count it is that there was a real attempt to say the orthodoxies are there to be broken and that there should be a new kind of economic approach and that's something which you know but it's try, uh, should it's be a defended kind of, it's a to a certain extent it's a dilet but they also i guess i mean this goes to our central question right so um they've got the orthodoxy wrong, right? They think of themselves as kind of bold, entrepreneurial, visionary leaders. So when Thatcher is coming in in the late 70s, right, there is an orthodoxy that she's tearing up. The orthodoxy that was inherited was a neoliberal orthodoxy. And it's that orthodoxy, you know, that was challenged. In fact, Boris Johnson was the political leader who challenged it and who broke it apart. They are attempting to restore an orthodoxy, thinking of themselves as um, these daring insurgent radicals, you know. And again, I mean, it speaks, I think, to the, you know, just to the sheer kind of political detachment that they were able to indulge this vision of themselves. No, and I think the whole point about the neo, what it was neoliberal orthodoxy was the fact that it signified a shift uh, and a pretty definitive shift in the center uh, of the uh, economic political spectrum, far in a, in a in a very conservative direction in terms of um, favoring those with existing economic power, um, playing to rentier interests, and so on. So, in that regard, you know, I think you know, and I don't want to get get held up on the on the question of where to place this on a left right political spectrum, because um, surely we can do better in terms of talking about politics and trying to understand things than just putting this on a on a kind of two dimensional spectrum. But um, but, it, you know, it, it does signify a, a shift, you know, to the right, that's how it would be conventionally understood. And what trustonomics does is shifts, it tries to shift it back to the right after it having kind of inched leftwards under under Johnsonism. Again, it's probably better ways to talk about it than than just left right. Um, but I think at this stage we should actually move on to something which we have intended to talk yeah, about, which is about the markets. Question. The central question, yeah. which is the markets reacted very negatively to this, and why? Because you know, if it's following that orthodox recipe, why do markets not like it? Do they not like the um, monetary tightening that's ongoing, or did they not like the fiscal laxity of the budget? It seems to be the latter. Why? Yeah. So this is an intro because I haven't seen. I mean, you know, um, maybe I've missed some pieces. You guys have read, but I, at least speaking for myself, I've not seen any fully convincing account of why the markets responded so badly. So I think everyone gets the idea that the markets um, are not convinced by the kind of Britannia Unchained neoliberal package. So the markets themselves have turned against neoliberalism. And um, the head, uh, Thorsten, Thorsten Bell, I think his name is, the head of one of the British think, another British think tank here, the Resolution Foundation said, you know, the Trust and Quarting were in the difficult position because they believed in the markets, but the markets didn't believe in them. So they didn't have a, dem you know, they didn't have a democratic or a voter mandate and they didn't have, they didn't have the, um, the mandate of heaven. They didn't have the mandate of the markets either. So they have literally nothing. So why did the markets turn? Um, I think the combination of the, you know, you can make a case of the combination of the enormous, one of the largest in Europe, if not the largest in Europe, the um, enormous kind of state spending that has been done to prop up the British economy with respect to the energy crisis on top of the tax cuts, which um, without any kind of effort to indicate where government revenue would come from, I suppose spooked, you know, you can make the case it spooked sufficient numbers of investors 
that they decided that um, you know they were going to kind of sell off Britain's um, sell off gilts. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I'm I, there's probably something to that. It doesn't seem to me a complete picture, um, given you know at the end of the day that Britain isn't like a Latin American country. Another kind of um, another um, a warm tropical wonderful Latin American country with great cocktails. But then like another element was I saw there was a piece by Evan Ambrose Pritchard in the um, Telegraph where he said that, you know, he mentioned kind of a hedge fund manager who's been terrified of revolution for the last 10, 12 years since the great financial crash. And that they're the kind of the leading outlook of the largest kind of investment companies and of the investment class has shifted entirely. And that they are genuinely kind of um, worried about that unless kind of um, there is kind of greater effort to tackle inequality and greater state spending, that we're going to enter a new era of um, populist upheaval and even revolution. And so that the political outlook of the investment class has changed in the last 10 years, which is another possibility. But, you know, like I say, um, both of those seem, I, both of those claims seem to me to have merit, but I haven't seen anything which is fully convincing. And I don't know if you guys have seen anything which you would add to the picture. In terms no, of explaining why the markets <clears throat> don't back neoliberalism. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I it, it's also evident just to add something to that, to tack something on, is that uh, the markets kind of representative, political representatives, normally uh, trusty hands. Uh, so Janet Yellen, U.S. Treasury Secretary, as well as Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary, um, you know, kind of key examples of, of neoliberal management have all kind of... Um, said, you know, look what trust is doing is completely ridiculous. It's utterly irresponsible and and so on. Um, so, I mean, I kind of do buy the case made that to a certain extent, the the days of sort of monological kind of pro-market policies from the market or pushing of pro-market policies from the markets themselves may have shifted. Um, I've also seen another theory that it, that this is, the U.S.'s attempt to um, to hobble Britain, right? That they, in a, it's an attempt to increase European dependency on the U.S., which is definitely ongoing, and we're seeing the roots of that in, in particularly with regard to energy um, and the kind of perpetuation of the Ukraine war is increasing European and particularly German dependency on the U.S. Um, but I'm not sure if I entirely buy that argument either with regard specifically to this uh, UK crisis that, you know, the, the markets have tried and led by the Fed have tried to hobble Britain um, to sort of punish trust. Um, I'm not sure I buy that either, George. I mean, the one thing that can be <clears throat> uh, can be dismissed pretty easily, I think, is the ideas about economic insanity or irresponsibility. Like if the markets are saying, this about a political program this is you know the question is whose interests does this uh, economic programs from the british government serve or not serve it's not about it being objectively impossible or or insane or irresponsible or, or whatever that's obviously moral language for <clears throat> the um whether this does or doesn't serve the interest that these that these yeah. that this investment class is is um uh is acting on behalf of and i guess this is a it is a good question like i mean i i yeah it it definitely doesn't i don't like the fact that there this um economic project which i may or may not agree with has been sunk by the acts the actions of like currency traders and the sorts of people who maybe are a bit more senior than those portrayed in um bbc and hbo's industry but that 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 um you know the pe people who work in financial well, don't you institutions. Find them really, don't you find them really charming? And they're the people you uh, you went to study with at Oxford, George. They're your peers. I do like the idea of having one of those uh, kind of um, fleece gilets. Um, that I think would be one of the main reasons I might like to work in a financial services um, context because I think they are they seem very really comfortable. And you know, if you have the problem of if your arms are too warm and your core is too cold, it's going to solve that problem pretty, um, that, pretty that's nicely. Like, that's I'd the like kind of market equilibrium the we want. Have their prior, yeah, the PMC have their priorities right. 
Um, yeah. I think, but I think it's important to talk about what the consequences on Britain might be and what might be a certain feedback loop or what the markets are foreseeing could happen. And obviously, uh, you know, the best description for Britain I've, I've heard is that it's a, a housing market with a country attached. Uh, and, you know, for anybody who yeah. knows Britain, will recognize the fact that it's just in terms of what um, officialdom says is the path to prosperity and success is to own your own house and to get on that housing ladder. And anybody with a little well, bit of means, is. a little bit of money tries to do that. And, and there's a reason for that. It is. I mean, it's rational behavior on the part of consumers. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. true. It is. The, it, the, 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 the irrationality is at the macro level. Absolutely. So what, but, but what's going on? Look, we've got course, an economist is, here. <laughs> what's the macro going... level irrational, irrationality. No, it's true. I mean, um, renting is is something which um you know it's it's obscenely expensive but, but to get to the, the consequences London. here is that you know well, mortgage okay, rates so... mortgage rates are going to increase because of the increase yeah. in interest rates that and, yeah. and ballooning you know increasing sometimes 50 percent and that means that a whole class of people middle class people not not particularly wealthy but but enough people to pay who for the mortgage exactly people yeah. who matter to the tory party Indeed, most yeah. definitely yeah. um well i mean the you political know. you know the wider kind of political class in as much as they're more likely to vote they're more likely to be well off they're more likely to um know how to make their voices felt particularly in the absence of an organized labor movement all of this is true and again it speaks i mean there are two points right so again it speaks to the weakness of um kind of the the political weakness of trust because the effect of increasing interest rates, if indeed that was what they intended, they intended to kind of um, force the Bank of England's hands into raising interest rates. Um, but the effect of that is going to be deeply damaging to homeowners who are kind of a core constituency for the Tory party. And it's going to be, even though interest rates will, you know, even say they go up to 6% in next year or the year after, um, they'll still be less than the Volcker shock, you know, of interest rates in the early 80s. But the FT did a very good kind of study of this, that even though they're less in absolute terms, given that people spend more money, the sheer kind of amount of money that people spend on overinflate, on overpriced housing, as a proportion of people spend, even an absolutely lower interest rate will still be, you'll still be paying in um, absolute terms, you'll still be paying more than people paid um, as with the interest rate spike that happened in the early 1980s. So the point is, right, it's deeply damaging. The rise of interest rates is deeply damaging to people who own property or which, or at least people who are paying back mortgages who are core constituency for the Tory party so that they've damaged the interests of their own um you know their own supporters so grievously is really something. The other element of this, though, which we haven't Sorry, mentioned, just to just to to add in really quickly on that, and this was the, um, this was specifically a, a constituency that was has been promoted from a, a long time, but is particularly associated with Thatcherism. The idea that you could, um, move to somewhere on the outskirts of a of a of a city, maybe own your own home, buy a Ford Mondeo like raise you know raise your family this is something which a massive amount of people um over the course of yeah, the 80s bought into bought into it was extremely not popular only, and now those people yeah, have only... been really burnt by by this um by this and it, it, like you said it's like it's your own constituency um you're supposed to <laughs> reward them um not punish them you kind of got the patronage system a bit wrong there if that's what you're doing so but the the authority of the market has been restored Right. And I think that's really important. So even though kind of the political economy, you know, as a package, uh, as a political economic package, neoliberalism has been shattered by the trust experience. And I think, again, you know, this proves the point that neoliberalism is over, you know, as a kind of as a meaningful um, as a meaningful kind of political option. It's over, particularly because the markets have turned on it. But in turning on it, they've restored their authority. And this is evident, for instance, in the Labour Party, which has been quick to endorse um, the statements of the IMF and the statements of the investment class about the recklessness and the irresponsibility and the, you know, kind of the um, the fisc you know, the heterodoxy and the ideological orariness of the Tory Party, the authority of the kind of technocratic agencies of the market as well as the market itself has been firmly put back in place as a result yeah. of this crisis and that's a very important element so even though it's a defeat for the tory party it's um a restoration of authority um for the markets and I, I as ever yeah. their path smooth for them by the labor party 
I think that's really important to underline. And actually to that distinction that you make is, is really important that you can still have market discipline um, and the authority of the markets, but on different grounds than the classically neoliberal recipe would suggest um, because now the order of the day is something different, but we might be worth asking. I'm sorry. What exactly... I mean, I, I just have to be a dissenting voice and I don't have a particularly strong argument for this, but why is this not neoliberalism? Like, okay, it's not austerity, um, but it still has all of the key um, constituent parts of trying to take economic decisions away from from elected representatives and and through a whole network. Well, it's of, technocratic. Yeah, it's yeah. technocratic, and it's but it's also and the authority of the market is something that pre. I mean, this might come as a shock to you, George, but the authority of the market pre-existed neoliberalism. <laughs> it's this whole thing called capitalism. It's been around for longer than neoliberalism. But I mean, the fact that the market is voting against voting with its money against um, tax cuts for corporations, that seems to me to be a you know, fairly significant reversal of that idea of the competition state, you know, where states kind of compete to um, to woo the market through lower, you know, through lower taxes, which is a very, you know, international competitiveness is a very um, integral part of the neoliberal vision of what countries are supposed to do in a globalized economy. And so the market is still calling the shots, but it's kind of tugging in a different direction. Yeah. Mm. And I think uh, to talk about where Britain is headed, I mean, I, I don't think it's going to face, uh, a, you know, a kind of uh, a, a run on the currency. Um, other lenders are still lending to Britain and Britain is borrowing in pounds. So in sterling, so it's not going to yeah, face the kind of crisis that, that Argentina thing. faces. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's, what did you say, Phil? That they, Thank that... God for Gordon Brown. Yeah, thank God for Gordon Brown. Well, in, indeed. But um, that doesn't mean that there can't be some sort of endogenous crisis created because of this. You know, if the housing market just suddenly blows up, uh, that will, that underpins so much other kind of leveraged aspects of the British economy that, um, you know, yeah, an economic the disaster economy could be possible. Well. I, think exactly. we, I mean, yeah. I think a financial crash is probably, I think, more than likely at this point. Um, but I mean, if you look at, say, what's happening in the German housing market um, and how leveraged it is as well, it's clear, I think, that, you know, it's kind of whatever is this is the surface, whatever's happened, you know, whatever happened to the British housing market and whatever happened in the kind of um, in the hedged leave in the hedging strategies of British pension funds. It's a um, it's a tremendous, you know, incredibly kind of fragile global financial system. Yeah. yeah, and then another point about Germany that they, um, two hundred billion euros. That was their their energy um, um, price stabilization uh, total cost estimated. I mean, that's just a staggering amount of money for something which you would say is a fairly like you could predict annually that you may need um, you may need energy, you may need gas to to do all sorts of things and if you get a lot of your gas from one um source then that makes you quite vulnerable um i mean it's it's yeah it's something which we've talked about before why the bavarian industrialists are not were not more prepared to defend their own economic interests against um german kind of pro uh, german anti russia kind of um strategizing an action US, of various sorts basically why the yeah. us yeah so it's a, it's a i agree there's um a very deep um weakness in the in you know, well in the european particularly um but world economy at the moment yeah and indeed obviously um looking further afield you know the kind of monetary tightening ongoing is an attempt to create a recession uh, to bring inflation under control and they're willing to and they've the fed has just said we're willing to we're probably we're more worried about not pushing hard enough than pushing too hard so they're still willing to bump up interest rates even further uh, and it's not having much effect on inflation because you know as we've discussed a number of times and as as is well known by now um you know these are all supply side driven so it might be effective but the sheer cost of of doing that is uh, extortionate um in terms of the 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 
extent of economic downturn necessary to to kind of cut inflation, basically stop people buying stuff. Um, so anyway, I think we're obviously going to do an episode more and, and maybe more than one episode on uh, on inflation specifically uh, in the coming months. Um, but we might leave this here as regards to Britain, unless you guys have anything to add, um, any speculations as to whether this government could even fall somehow. It, it's probably, uh, I think we should just touch on yeah, that briefly. I mean... Um, is it, I mean, I, I would put money on trust being gone by the end of the year, early next year. So before the before the winter ends, I think. Um, but no, but no election gone. effectively because there won't. Well, be but I think it'll be hard not to have an election next year then. So not immediately after she goes, I think there'll be some kind of interim emergency kind of uh, uh, Tory government. But I mean, after you've had a few changes of leader without elections, I mean, it's just unsustainable. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, still, luckily, it's still un- unsustainable just about. So I imagine there'll be an early election next year. The most sensible thing for the Tories to do would be, and this is what I would predict will happen, is that they'll replace trust with Sunak and do something quote-unquote sensible and try and placate the markets. And then if there's any sort of uh, honeymoon bounce or whatever it is, like that's the time that they might think, okay, we can go it. We can go for a general election now, but how they've managed to squander the the political capital which they gained um, during Brexit, even even with uh, even kind of Johnson being relatively popular during COVID, somehow, um, yeah, I mean, welcome to the irrationality of the capitalist mm-hmm. class, I guess. Yeah, but anyway, I'm sure there'll be plenty more to talk about. The pace of change seems to be accelerating further, and the irrationality of political elites only seems to accelerate that. Uh, yet one notch more. Um, so anyway, we'll have plenty of t- to talk about and we hope uh, you will continue joining us for to try to explore the contours of the collapse of neoliberalism and what comes next. Catch you next time. Bye-bye. Jesus, George, so get this. The latest is that Hunt might step in as caretaker leader. What? Wow. Caretaker leader? Yeah. Jesus hell. Christ. That wow. remainer cunt, like... He's got the most punchable face, I think, of all the Tory MPs. A total fucking Remainer cunt. And now he's going to be fucking leader. Great. Unelected leader, even better. What, what was the music that you were suggesting, Phil? Quasi, quasi? Yeah, what's the song? Quasi, quasi, quasi something. <laughs> I, can't remember. What is I have no idea what that is. I don't know it. Quasi quasi qua Bunagala China so banana ye quasi qua Bunaga